Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. My name is Roland Clark, and it's my pleasure to be speaking today to Dr. Alex Drace Francis, who's Associate Professor of Modern European Literary and Cultural History in the Department of European Studies at the University of Amsterdam. Alex has published widely on European cultural and social history in the 18th and 19th centuries, with particular reference to Romania and the Balkans. He's also worked on broader questions of travel writing and cultural identities in Europe, with a huge bibliography under his belt. His latest book is a venture into food history, focusing on what the title calls a Romanian national dish. Alex, for those of our listeners who've never tasted it, exactly what is Mamaliga? Thank you, Roland, for that kind introduction. Yeah, Mamaliga, we're here to talk about Mamaliga. It's a nice word, isn't it? I hope you agree, yeah. Uh, People know about spaghetti, People know about tortilla, people know about papadums, people know about potatoes, and mamaliga is a nice word, kind of in that ballpark of uh, special foods around the world, but maybe it's uh, a lot less known than those uh, previous examples. So, yeah. In some ways, mamaliga is easy to describe. Uh, It's a uh, kind of mash or porridge or cake. Uh, There's slightly different ways of describing it. And the ingredients are incredibly simple. Uh, As a Scottish person, then I make porridge with oats and water. If I was a Romanian person, I would make mamaliga with cornmeal flour and water. Yeah, so ground maize meal boiled with water and stirred vigorously. Yeah. Uh, Having said it's easy to describe, and I don't think it's too difficult to make if you've got a little bit of elbow power. Um, it's quite hard to translate. Uh, some people uh, make an analogy with Italian polenta, which is, of course, very well known, also made uh, with corn flour and with cornmeal and with uh, hot water and stirred and boiled. Uh, polenta kind of has a little bit different associations. Yeah. Although originally, I would say polenta is very similar. Uh, people often feel that mamaliga is very specific and it's often used uh, a little bit in shorthand uh, to refer to uh, Romanian cultural issues. Yeah. So, yeah, on the one hand, uh, a simple task which could take uh, a couple of lines, a few lines in a cookbook, or it's a very complicated problem uh, which uh, requires further explanation. Because it's, it's not just a Romanian national dish, it's a Romanian national identity in a lot of ways. Um, this is a really fun book to read, and it looks like it was fun to write as well. Just to quote one sentence from the introduction. In some periods, Mama Liga boiled steadily on the stove of history or was even stored quietly on the pantry shelf. At others, it was vigorously stirred by war, disease, exploitation and tyranny. It was subjected to territorial slicing, and during more than one moment of revolution, the dish was in danger of exploding. This is a book that's chock full of puns and playfulness, uh, alongside some brutally erudite and careful scholarship. 
but it's also a really serious topic. Um, besides the appendix dedicated to understanding the etymology of six different types of um, six different words for mamaliga in Romanian, what's the big argument that you wanted to get across in this book? Uh, thanks again, Roland. Really interesting uh, question. Yeah, uh, I think uh, many people uh, uh, who've studied a little bit of East European history uh, or looked into uh, uh, questions of uh, uh, modern Romania, uh, they might think of it in terms of a history of heroes and villains. Yeah, to quote the title of a book by a colleague of ours, uh, Maria Bucur. Yeah, um, you have uh, villains like uh, Ceausescu. Uh, uh, you have uh, monarchs, uh, you have bandits, uh, uh, you have communists, you have fascists. Yeah, uh, it's a really kind of event-based, uh, people-based approach uh, to uh, the national story, the national history. Yeah, uh, some of my ideas in this book come from wanting to take a little bit more of a, uh, a long-term approach. Yeah, uh, to look at actually uh, older trajectories and to do it uh, very much from a cultural history point of view. I was trained as uh, a literary and cultural historian, uh, but I'm also very interested in social history. And I think food is kind of one way of uh, getting into uh, uh, some of these cultural problems in a little bit of a deeper way. Yeah. There's a good tradition of uh, writing about food internationally, yeah, and there's an interesting tradition of uh, commodity history, uh, looking at, say, the how cod changed the world, or you know, what is the uh, contribution of salt uh, to the development of uh, modern Europe. Yeah. There's also good work by anthropologists uh, looking at the tomato uh, or the potato, yeah, uh, or uh, particular national dishes. You know, what is the position of the uh, the curry in uh, modern British society? My colleague here in Amsterdam, Elizabeth Butner, has written on that topic. Um, so you have something which may be an informal uh, part of the culture, yeah. uh, little you know, dishes that people make and they have some kind of uh, uh, emotional attachment to them, uh, to it. It has certain meanings uh, within the culture. Um, so, yeah, as you say, you can approach it as a, as a fun problem, uh, and, uh, you, but you can also approach it as a, uh, a question of um, economy, of uh, social development, of, uh, of social change. Yeah. In some ways, it's a little bit provocative. You know, did Mamaliga actually have a history? You know? uh, I found when I was starting to research the book that there were loads of mentions of Mamaliga, lots of people. Everyone recognizes Mamaliga who knows uh, a thing or two about Romania. Uh, and there are quite a lot of informal popular histories. There's some nice newspaper articles. There's some very good cookbooks. Uh, uh, there's some wonderful recent work on uh, material culture and social change in Romania and Southeast Europe. Uh, uh, colleagues in, in Romania have done excellent work on luxury and fashion. Uh, there's a really good volume uh, by a couple of Romanian scholars, uh, Angela Gianu and Violetta Barbu, uh, called Earthly Delights, uh, Cultures and Economies of Food uh, in Ottoman and Danubian Europe. Yeah. So there's been a, a really good school, in fact, of uh, paying attention to uh, material culture and social change. Yeah. Uh, but I found, in fact, there was more to say about Mamalika. Yeah. Uh, I was interested in the fact that it wasn't a, uh, you know, one of the, the principal ingredients. Uh, uh, cornmeal uh, comes from maize, and maize, as we know, is not a European plant. Uh, so there was a kind of history to be told there. You know, how did this uh, uh, come to be? Uh, perceived as the Romanian uh, national dish, both by insiders 
and uh, by outsiders. Yeah. Um, and uh, looking into this question, I actually found more than I expected. Lots of uh, untapped sources, um, uh, lots of uh, different ways of looking at it. Uh, and it's also fun to range across different types of sources. So you have kind of uh, formal uh, uh, documents from official authorities uh, looking at maze, but you also have uh, cultural representations in folklore, uh, in cinema, yeah, uh, in literature, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I use it really as a way of uh, you know taking a new approach to uh, existing questions of uh, Romanian national development, but also hopefully trying to compare those uh, with developments in other parts of the world. Um, and a lot of the book is dedicated to the history of Mamaliga and how Mamaliga created modern Romania. Um, but you mentioned a second ago literature and cinema and folklore. Can you say something about what role Mamaliga has played um, in, in Romanian cultural production? either in the past or today? Uh, yeah, sure. I can certainly say a few things about that, and I do say a few things about that in the book. Uh, it was actually when I was trying to get to grips uh, with the question, and as I mentioned, you know, despite this excellent tradition of uh, uh, material culture, history, uh, uh, I was also interested in social attitudes to uh, Mamaliga. Yeah. Any uh, staple dish uh, has certain connotations of social status. Uh, one dish might be codified as an elite dish. You know, others might be a poor dish. I've mentioned porridge in the Scottish case. You know, that was historically the food of poor people, but then it becomes a national identity uh, symbol. Yeah. These are things which are kind of a little bit awkward to document. Yeah. Uh, anthropologists have talked about cultural intimacy, which is uh, a concept uh, coined by uh, Michael Hertzfeld. Uh, uh, and cultural int intimacy refers to things which people know about, but they don't necessarily talk about explicitly, uh, perhaps precisely because uh, it's assumed that everyone's familiar with them in a little way. Yeah. And really for this reason, uh, although I think it's a, uh, a historical narrative, uh, I think looking at literary and cultural and cinematic sources uh, can be very helpful uh, not because they tell us you know, the true meaning of Mamaliga, but they give a certain sense, indications and so on. You know. So you see Mamaliga uh, featuring uh, in a tiny way in contemporary Romanian uh, film, or you have a whole lot of proverbs and sayings about uh, Mamaliga. Uh, one thing I would notice is that these are not always necessarily uh, positive. Um, uh, Mamaliga is remembered with uh, affection uh, in some ways, uh, perhaps particularly uh, among Romanian diaspora communities uh, uh, who remember Mamaliga as something belonging to their homeland, uh, comfort food, a source of uh, uh, security, a source of memory, uh, uh, family memories, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, uh, looking at ways in which it's codified uh, in uh, elite or popular culture, uh, the associations are not always positive. Yeah. Uh, so if I were to say to you, I, I wouldn't dream of saying this to you, uh, I'm going to make Mamaliga out of you, yeah. which in Romanian, I'm so far kutine Mamaliga. Yeah. That means I'm going to beat you up. Yes? I'm going to beat you into a mush. Yeah. Um, or if I say of somebody else, you know, he's only good for cutting Mamaliga with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that means uh, he's not very good uh, uh, for anything. Yeah. Because Mamaliga is soft and mushy. You can cut Mamaliga. Uh, uh, with the most rudimentary uh, tool, yeah. 
Um, so it has a little bit these associations, which could be ones, as I say, of uh, uh, affection um, or, or sentiment, uh, but a little bit this kind of awkward, uh, uh, perhaps stigma associated uh, uh, with Mamaliga. Yeah, it's the kind of bottom line of society, yeah, a subsistence level uh, of existence. Yeah. So you get a little bit of a contrast. Um, and I think the historian, you know, can look at, uh, at literature, folklore and film uh, as kind of clues uh, to, uh, uh, to a more complex history. Yeah. Uh, here in Amsterdam, we have a school of image studies, which spends a lot of time looking at uh, uh, representations of stereotypes. Yeah. And in some ways, it's the opposite approach uh, from the conventional archive-based historian yeah, who looks for secrets um, uh, in dark cupboards. Yeah. Um, cultural historians often look at the surface of things. Yeah. Uh, this is what uh, a professor in Amsterdam, Joop Leersen, calls hiding in the popcorn. Yeah. Uh, this is a title of his uh, uh, work, a study of national ideology and how it survives uh, into the 21st century. Yeah. If we look at popcorn, if we look at kind of popular... Uh, yeah, productions not always highly rated either by literary scholars or by historians. Uh, we actually see kind of funny things uh, which tell us a lot about stereotypes and uh, social status. Yeah, and it's very appropriate that popcorn is also a maize-based dish, just like uh, Romanian mamaliga. Yeah. And um, yeah, so mamaliga comes from maize, but uh, you mentioned earlier maize is not European. And it first comes to Europe in the pockets of Christopher Columbus in 1493. But how does it then get to Spain, from Spain, to the lands we now call Romania? Uh, that's a fascinating and uh, really complex question. Yeah. And uh, maize is kind of one of the most widespread crops in the world uh, today. If we look at statistics over the recent uh, decades, we can see it's kind of overtaking rice. You know, it's uh, uh, taking a a march on the potato, um, you know, maize is ubiquitous in the modern world. The modern world could not run without maize. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people have tried to figure out this question. Yeah. There have been some uh, Colombo skeptics, we might call them, who even argue that maize arrived uh, uh, before 1492 uh, 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 somewhere on the coast of West Africa where the Portuguese found it. And that's a kind of wacky theory which people come up with. Uh, if you go, if you put maize history into Amazon, uh, you will be referred to a book which suggests that the ancient Egyptians uh, had maize. Uh, that's a bit on the kind of loony fringe of uh, maize history studies. Uh, uh, but the consensus now is, in fact, that Columbus did bring maize uh, for the first time to Europe in 1493. Yeah. What happened next is really hard to uh, figure out. You know, uh, we see it growing in southern Spain, in Andalusia. Uh, we have some references to it in Rome. Yeah. Other people argue uh, lots of different uh, routes. Yeah. Uh, so some people argue that uh, it didn't, in fact, travel uh, across the Mediterranean in the 16th century, but round the coast of Africa. And it was brought uh, by merchants through the Red Sea uh, to Cairo uh, and from Cairo uh, to Istanbul and from Istanbul to the Balkans. You know. Uh, remarkable speculative theory. Very, very little evidence uh, for it. Yeah. Um, uh, and still, you know, even in my first chapters, you know, uh, I was very keen to uh, to solve this problem. In fact, I spent most of my time uh, questioning uh, existing theories. Uh, but we do find maize uh, in the early 17th century uh, uh, with fairly uh, 
know, clear indications that uh, what is being talked about is maize uh, in northern Transylvania, uh, in northern uh, uh, Moldavia, yeah, uh, part of the uh, uh, eastern region of contemporary Romania, uh, uh, and then uh, towards the end of the 17th century in the southern regions of uh, Wallachia. Yeah. Um, uh, so really, I have to say I, I didn't provide a definitive solution to this problem. Uh, uh, but one thing I was sure of was that um, uh, it wasn't introduced uh, by formal uh, decree. Yeah. Lots of people uh, imagine history functioning in terms of, let us say, a leader, you know, um, Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent or Emperor Rudolf, the Habsburg Emperor in the late 16th century, uh, issuing a decree that maize should be planted, you know, just like some kind of uh, 16th century uh, Donald Trump having a great idea, you know. Um, but uh, uh, this is probably not how it worked, yeah. And uh, all I could do really was to collate uh, uh, the earliest mentions uh, uh, and uh, speculate according to context. Uh, uh, we have merchants in the Adriatic who uh, quite likely played a significant role. They were connected with Venice. Uh, Venice, in turn, was connected with Iberia. Yeah. Uh, we also have evidence in uh, Central Europe. So we find maize in Prague and Vienna uh, uh, towards the end of the 16th century, uh, usually in elite uh, uh, botanical collections or herbariums yeah, uh, or herbal books. Herbal books are nice because you actually get a picture uh, and then you can be sure it's maize. Yeah. Uh, uh, so really it appears in um, uh, in little corners of, of uh, Ottoman Europe uh, at slightly funny stages, and uh, we're dependent also on you know, people's interest in maize. Um, and I think people really weren't very interested in maize until quite late. You know, it was clearly being used, uh, uh, but the degree to which the uh, uh, authorities noticed it um, uh, is um, uh, often hard to interpret. Yeah, there's the challenge of when something's everywhere, why bother mentioning that it exists? Yeah, it's like camels. Uh, uh, in Arabic sources, never mention the camels because everybody knows they're there. Yeah. Um, one of the best clues we've got that maize became socially important in the 18th century is that rulers started taxing it and making laws about it. Um, how and when did maize enter the law books? Yeah, that's a good question too, Roland. Thank you. Yeah. Um, before I answer, I'm just going to sketch a little bit. Um, maybe your viewers, your your listeners are. Uh, 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 not all totally familiar with the complex kind of history of the early modern uh, uh, Balkans. Yeah. Uh, in short, you know, this is a period of uh, uh, confrontation, uh, sometimes viewed as hostility uh, uh, between uh, Christian and Muslim empires, between the Habsburgs uh, and the Ottomans. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, frequent uh, wars between uh, these two great, uh, great powers uh, in this period. Yeah, uh, but it's also a period, a little bit of cultural exchange. Yeah, uh, and the lands we're dealing with uh, north of the Danube, uh, uh, Wallachia, Moldavia, and Transylvania uh, had a little bit of a kind of ambiguous status uh, between uh, uh, between these two great empires. Uh, they were they were ruled by Christian princes. Yeah. Uh, they were. Uh, what we call tributary to the Ottomans. Uh, in other words, they had to make uh, payments, uh, usually in kind, uh, uh, to the Turks. Uh, so they handed over sheep or timber or wax um, uh, and so forth. Uh, but they also played a part as intermediaries uh, uh, between these empires. So you have 
um, Hungarians in Transylvania, you have a strong Hungarian elite there. Um, uh, you have uh, uh, an Orthodox Christian elite in Wallachia and Moldavia. Yeah. Uh, and they're very much kind of between uh, these two empires. Yeah. Uh, but also in these in these provinces in this period, uh, you start to get the development of uh, legal institutions, uh, uh, courts, uh, uh, diets in Transylvania, something resembling a modern parliament, yeah, uh, and uh, decrees, you know, princely decrees. Uh, uh, so you do see maize uh, cropping up in these kind of documents, you know, towards the end of the 17th century, yeah. Uh, there's a particularly interesting case in Transylvania, uh, where, as I say, the elite population uh, was largely uh, Hungarian-speaking yeah, uh, nobility, yeah, uh, and uh, the peasantry was largely uh, Romanian, uh, uh, Romanian-speaking, you know, often excluded uh, uh, from uh, the legal privileges enjoyed by uh, the Hungarians and also by the uh, German-speaking Saxon population of Transylvania. Yeah. And there's several mentions which uh, uh, come in uh, decrees issued by the Transylvanian Diet uh, saying that the Wallachian peasants are not allowed to grow maize, yeah, partly because it interrupts the orderly three-field system, uh, which is the basis of uh, uh, medieval and early modern agriculture. Yeah. Uh, so if you like, the first mention of maize is negative. You know, this is something um, outside uh, the existing uh, social order. Uh, uh, the Wallachians are using it uh, uh, to evade. They're growing it outside the village bounds. Uh, uh, they're you know, not paying their taxes on maize and so forth. Yeah. And remarkably, we get you know, similar decrees in Moldavia, uh, also around the 1690s, uh, where a new prince is appointed and he comes in and he starts to issue a tax on maize. Yeah. And this is very unpopular with the population. Everyone says, what a silly thing to do. You know, everyone has maize. Maize should be something that's kind of uh, for free. You know, uh, People are growing it under the forests, according to the documents. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, end of the 17th century, after this kind of mysterious period where we're not quite sure you know, who has maize, uh, because people are not interested in it, um, the legislators do start to take an interest in it, you know, and and uh, they use it as a form of social control, you know, to say, you know, uh, we are the ones, uh, you know, who decide what can and cannot be grown in this province. You know, uh, we are the ones who decide what uh, what should be taxed. Yeah, uh, people should not live outside the law. You know? And through this, we actually get a glimpse of you know the fact that people were living a little bit uh, outside authority. And this is something that's also been observed off maize in other parts of the world, in Africa and in Indonesia. Uh, uh, James Scott, in his book, The Art of Not Being Governed, refers to maize as an escape crop. Uh, people can grow it uh, in the highlands of Indonesia, you know, far away from uh, the reaches of government. You know, uh, they can live on it um, uh, without having to necessarily, you know, Go to the city, or you know, engage with uh, uh, engage with the authorities in any way. Yeah, and uh, to some extent, that is a little bit the picture that we get in uh, not just in Southeast Asia, but in Southeast Europe. You know, maize is the escape crop. You know, this is people's safety valve. This is their way out of uh, uh, taxation and oppression. Um, uh, but we only really get this view, you know, uh, through uh, uh, the laws that are made against it. We get very few uh, statements, you know, what the peasants themselves thought of maize. You, know. um, you make the point in the book that at various times in history, 
maize and mamaliga was associated with particular social classes, like um, the Wallachians are growing it in order, well, sort of against the Hungarian or um, Austrian rulers' wishes. And so it's associated with different ethnic groups and different social classes. You've told us a bit about how it functions in Romanian culture already. Can you say something about the Roma relationship with maize? Thank you, Roland. Yeah, again, a very uh, interesting question. Yeah, uh, just again to provide a bit of context, uh, uh, looking at uh, what happens in the Balkans in the 18th century, uh, so that I can kind of place your question a little bit uh, uh, more accurately and also uh, help listeners maybe who aren't specialized in the region. Yeah. 18th century Balkans. You know, uh, this is a period when uh, uh, the uh, uh, conflicts between uh, the different empires of the region uh, come to the boil, uh, if you may excuse a uh, Mamaliga metaphor yeah, uh, applied to historical uh, developments. Uh, so we have the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, uh, and we have also uh, the rise of Russia in the 18th century uh, and the first uh, yeah, military conflicts between uh, the Ottomans and the Russians. This is a phenomenon which will last for uh, uh, two or three centuries uh, 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 in the Balkans. Yeah, uh, we get a situation uh, where the government of these provinces um, uh, starts to become uh, very important to the surrounding empires. Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting, in fact, is that uh, these empires don't actually seek to, uh, in most cases, literally colonize uh, uh, these territories. Uh, they all have a little bit of an interest in maintaining a kind of buffer zone uh, between them. Yeah. So this is a kind of interstitial place, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so you have Ottoman, uh, Habsburg, and uh, Russian uh, empires, as we call them uh, today, yeah, uh, 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 fighting over this space. But then you have a lot of uh, uh, intermediary layers of power. Now, I've mentioned the Hungarian nobility in Transylvania, yeah, in uh, uh, Moldavia and Wallachia, you have uh, a Greek-speaking uh, nobility in the 18th century, yeah. and uh, uh, then you have uh, the Romanian uh, people. Yeah. Uh, the Romanian people achieve elite status in Moldavia and Wallachia, but not so in Transylvania. Yeah. So again, you have this kind of uh, uh, intermediary life yeah, uh, on, the, on the confines of empire, at empire's edge. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also have all kinds of different ethnic groups. Uh, you have Armenian traders, you, know, uh, you have Serbian pig merchants, uh, you have some uh, Bulgarian uh, uh, cultivators, uh, you have Albanians uh, in this region as well, uh, often uh, serving as military guards in the courts in Bucharest and uh, Yash in uh, Moldavia. Um, and kind of at the bottom of this um, social pyramid. I hesitate to call it a pyramid. Um, it's more like some kind of uh, very complex polyhedron of kind of social relations, very difficult, difficult to describe, uh, are the Roma um, uh, people. Yeah. Now, the Roma or gypsies, uh, uh, today they're often um, uh, seen as a denigrated people or by some people romanticized. Uh, but effectively, in uh, uh, Wallachia and Moldavia, they were enslaved. Yeah. Uh, so they were... Uh, uh, slaves held uh, by the princes, uh, by the nobles of these territories called boyars. Uh, they would own slaves. Uh, and also the monasteries, the orthodox monasteries of this region, 
uh, would be slave owners uh, in this region. Yeah. Uh, so possibly up to about 10% of the population, uh, 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 very difficult to get accurate uh, population uh, calculations for the early period. Uh, there are Roma gypsy uh, slaves. Yeah. And uh, we kind of glimpsed them, uh, particularly in monastery documents uh, uh, from the 18th century. Uh, occasionally, they're referred to as uh, uh, working with maize. You know, it's not kind of in the traditional repertoire of uh, Roma gypsy professions, often seen as kind of uh, not involved in agriculture. Uh, uh, but uh, Roma people did perform uh, agricultural labor. Uh, quite a, there's a specific category, in fact, called Tsigan de Ogor, uh, which might translate as field gypsies uh, who carried out this work. Um, uh, we also have uh, reference to uh, uh, Roma gypsy slaves uh, uh, acting as uh, guards for maize stores. Yeah. Um, uh, so you have kind of quite a little bit of a um, Roma involvement uh, with maize. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's not necessarily the kind of relationship that you would see, uh, for instance, in the U.S. South, um, uh, where the African-American slaves uh, would be associated very directly with, say, cotton and sugar, the plants that they uh, performed back-breaking labor uh, to grow uh, in enslaved conditions. Um, so it's not necessarily that kind of relation. Yeah. Uh, but what's very interesting, and particularly looking at the cultural sources, is that many of them do associate uh, Mamaliga with uh, Roma gypsies. Yeah. Uh, just to give a couple of examples here, um, some of the sources which um, start to codify national cuisine in Romania uh, were published already in the 19th century. Um, uh, so we have uh, a cookbook uh, by the Romanian nation builder, Mihail Cogolniciano, also a very distinguished foreign minister and politician uh, and historian, yeah, also published a cookbook. Yeah. What's curious is that in the cookbook, he does not mention Mamaliga. It's not a characteristic Romanian dish for him. Yeah. Uh, but he also published one of the first ethnographic works uh, related to the Roma gypsies. And in this work, he describes their characteristic food to be uh, mamaliga. Yeah. Um, uh, so mamaliga, or this maize porridge, um, uh, is associated not only with the Romanian people, uh, but also with uh, uh, the Roma gypsies. Yeah. And this is something that comes through also in, uh, in folklore and in popular songs uh, as well, yeah. uh, that mamaliga might possibly be uh, a characteristic Roma food. Yeah. Um, that's actually an argument which uh, I mentioned very frequently in the book, but I would like to develop uh, a little bit more. It's not you know, my central argument, uh, but I think it's interesting to see how uh, mamaliga as a dish you know, uh, uh, might not just be a Romanian cultural symbol, but also uh, have associations uh, with Roma uh, and occasionally also with other ethnic groups as well. Um. Yeah, particularly with poverty. Yeah, uh, but I think that's a uh, that's a good point. It's kind of mamaliga, maybe like porridge. You know, is seen as a subsistence food. You know, it is the kind of just maybe as the Roma, the kind of bottom layer of society. So um, mamaliga, both literally and uh, socially, is the uh, bottom layer of uh, of subsistence. You know, if you have mamaliga, you can. Uh, survive. Yeah, uh, you will. Um, you will eat. You will not be rich. Uh, you will not be uh, well esteemed. Um, uh, but it's a kind of. Um, it's at the bottom of things. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it nonetheless has a lot of uses in the 18th century. Um, you describe people using it to make alcohol, um, to get sugar from, 
and we even see maize being smuggled out of Wallachia into Transylvania and Bukovina um, against the wishes of the authorities. Why do you think it was that maize was so versatile? Um, that's a good question as well. Yeah, I mean, a simple answer, which is quite often given in popular writing about uh, Mamaliga, um, actually has a kind of kernel of truth uh, to it. You know, uh, so if you read a kind of popular uh, popular newspaper article um, on our national food, uh, why do we eat Mamaliga in Romania? Yeah, people will say uh, because the Turks uh, didn't take it. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a little bit of truth in that, actually. Uh, and it's true not only of the Ottomans, but also um, the Habsburgs and the Russians. Uh, if you do 18th century history of this region, you're very dependent on uh, foreign sources uh, uh, and uh, you know, surveys of economic conditions uh, written in different languages, uh, irrespective of whether they're written by Russians, uh, you know, Austrians or Turks, uh, tend to have a kind of negative attitude towards uh, maize. Yeah. Um, so again, I have, say, an Austrian report saying you know, uh, uh, Mamaliga uh, is uh, what the uh, 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 bureaucrat calls in German a defect. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a poor food. Yeah. Uh, or I have, uh, again, an Austrian administrator complaining that you know, the Romanians are growing maize everywhere uh, and not sticking to kind of orderly... Uh, field boundaries, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Um, so there's obviously a kind of negative attitude towards maize on the part of the different um, neighboring imperial authorities. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes uh, popular stories have a, have a grain of truth to them. And uh, maize obviously was used by people living uh, on the margins of society, uh, also literally on the geographical boundaries uh, uh, between empires, Um the basic kind of Ottoman frontier, Ottoman Habsburg frontier, is, um, uh, coincides with the uh, Carpathian Mountains um, uh, circling uh, Transylvania. Yeah. So you get people living in the uplands of these mountains, not exactly on the peaks, but you know, halfway up the hill. Yeah. Um, you also have a pastoral economy. There are shepherds uh, uh, from Transylvania uh, who travel every year uh, uh, across the Carpathians and across the Wallachian Plain down to the uh, lower Danube, uh, the banks of the Danube, uh, uh, which is very fertile, very rich uh, terrain. Yeah. Um, uh, so we have a little bit of movement across this um, uh, imperial uh, frontier, uh, if you like. Yeah. Um, and uh, these people uh, clearly start to valorize maize uh, in uh, the second half of the 18th century. Yeah. Um, as I say, we're, we're often dependent on consular reports, but we also get more local documentation um, uh, and we see people uh, uh, using maize uh, uh, in different ways. Yeah. Uh, so although the book is called The Making of Mamaliga, uh, 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 it could be about the making of other things. Yeah. Uh, so in late 18th century Moldavia on the Polish border, you start to get the development of uh, al alcohol production yeah, on a larger scale. There's traditional alcohol production uh, made of fruit you know, since time immemorial. Uh, but people also work out that they can make alcohol out of uh, maize. You know, this is the kind of uh, Jack Daniels of the Lower Danube, if you like. You know? um, and they can also make money for it. They can commercialize um, alcohol. Yeah. So the Christian uh, uh, Orthodox elites of the region uh, 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 start to get interested in maize if they can make it to sell alcohol to sell to the peasants uh, or sell across the frontier into Poland or into Russia. You know, uh, they're onto something. Yeah. Uh, they also use it for fodder, yeah. Um, 
Now, today in the world, you know, two thirds or even three quarters of maize production is destined for animal fodder. Yeah, uh, and uh, in earlier times that wasn't the case. You know, it was mainly eaten by uh, uh, humans. Uh, but people also work out that they can fatten their pigs better on maize than they can on acorns. Yeah, and uh, we see this uh, uh, going on as well. Yeah, um, we also see. Um, uh, some of these kind of transborder people, you know, whether they're shepherds or whether they're bandits um, or whether they're merchants, you know, uh, changing maize from one province to another, you know, they know where there's plenty of maize, they know where maize is scarce, uh, they know that they can uh, profit from this in a little way. Yeah. Uh, this is also a continued period of uh, uh, regular warfare between the Russians and the Ottomans and also the Habsburgs. Yeah. So if you can uh, sell maize to an army, uh, you can do well. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Russians really do not like maize very much at all. So um, you're not going to make much money uh, selling maize to. You know, they say it's very, very bad for the stomach. These Moldavian cakes. You know, we like to eat rye bread. You know, um, uh, but uh, you know, in this kind of inter-imperial space, uh, uh, which you think of maybe as a space of uh, of disorder, uh, you start to get these kind of economic activities, which, you know, again, they kind of provide structure to the economy uh, and they enable some people to grow rich. Uh, and we're leading up to the period of the uh, uh, national revolts in the 19th century. You know, uh, sometimes said that in, in neighboring Serbia, the national revolt was uh, uh, instigated by pig traders you know, who had prospered on the Ottoman Habsburg frontier. Uh, and a little bit the, the same in Wallachia, you get pig traders, but also maize traders. You know, uh, some of the Wallachian elite of the 19th century, you know, really do owe their wealth to uh, uh, this kind of uh, approach to maize that they could commercialize it and they could do you know new things with it and they could change their social status. Yeah. You can make big claims about this, you know, uh, and big claims have been made. Uh, the American historian William McNeil, um, who's uh, uh, very distinguished historian of the potato, but also uh, written about what he called Europe's steppe frontier. Um, uh, you know, he claimed that maize, you know, uh, enabled the population to live well, you know, outside of uh, authority, yeah, uh, and uh, even that this changed the uh, the balance of power uh, in the Balkans. You know, this was kind of almost the origin of the uh, the Balkan national revolutions. You know, now that's a bit of a you know, stick your neck out claim, you know, uh, but in some ways I think it's nice to entertain these claims and look at them in, in detail. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, Mamaliga uh, caused um, uh, Romanian national independence, uh, but there is some truth in saying that maize, you know, did change uh, social relations uh, in these borderland regions. Um, and, and you do have some evidence for that. Uh, you talk about the 1821 uprisings and the 1888 peasant revolt, and the 1907 peasant uprising, um, and you show that maize is omnipresent. It's wherever you turn in those uprisings, you see maize uh, appearing. Um, thinking just about 1821 and Alexander Ypsilanti's revolt, can you tell us how did maize help Ypsilanti rebel against the Ottomans? Okay, so it's like how maize changed the world. Yeah, uh, you know, this is the um, this is the popular historian's uh, claim. Yeah. Uh, this point was actually raised in quite an uh, entertaining but also serious article published uh, in the 1980s about uh, conditions in Ceausescu's Romania. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Samson, uh, Stephen Samson, who was an American-trained uh, anthropologist, uh, was trying to explain to himself in that period you know, 
why there seemed to be very, very little sign of uh, political resistance uh, in Ceausescu's Romania. There was no solidarity movement. There was no Charter 77. Uh, the people seemed like uh, Mamaliga to him. You know? uh, and his article is called uh, Muddling Through in Romania or Why the Mamaliga Doesn't Explode. Okay. Uh, so that was his kind of very witty but also pertinent uh, 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 phrase uh, for a social analysis of uh, conditions uh, under late socialism. So just before the famous uh, Romanian uh, revolution of 1989. Yeah. And this phrase actually got picked up, you know, and uh, there are even books now in Romanian called, you know, uh, Why the Mamaliga Exploded, you know, uh, or uh, looking at interpretations of the Romanian revolution using this metaphor, yeah. Um, so I think it's worth mentioning that this is a kind of common figure of speech, um, uh, well, not universally known, but kind of, uh, quite widespread figure of speech uh, to refer to um, social change in Romania, the exploding mamaliga. Yeah. Um, so it's when the nation uh, finally kind of uh, comes up in revolt. Yeah. Um, Romania, as you mentioned, has this history of uh, rebellion and, and revolt going back to the 19th century uh, to 1821. Uh, which is kind of beginning of the end of Ottoman rule, uh, marked by uh, 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 a simultaneous uh, rebellion uh, led by, uh, uh, on the one hand, a, uh, a Greek nobleman called Prince Alexander Ipsilanti, and by a Romanian uh, free peasant uh, called Tudor uh, Vladimirescu. Yeah. And uh, this revolt has been... Uh, uh, studied uh, hundreds of times, and uh, we heard a lot about it last year in uh, 2021 because it was the bicentenary. Yeah. Now, many of these interpretations uh, are looking at uh, you know whether this was a Greek revolt, you know, or whether it was a Romanian peasant revolt. Uh, the two leaders, the Greek uh, nobleman and the Romanian peasant, actually end up coming into conflict with each other. The Ipsilanti has. Uh, the Greek Ipsilanti has the Romanian Vladimirescu killed on his orders, um, uh, but then his own rebellion is a disaster. Uh, but this is kind of the beginning of the, uh, the building of the national state, uh, uh, not just in Romania, but also in Greece and other parts uh, of the Balkans. Yeah. Um, so reading a lot of this stuff and rereading it, particularly last year, you know, uh, I thought, well, you know, how can we get an alternative interpretation? You know, does it have to just be a story of kind of um, elites versus peasants or Greeks versus Romanians. You know? um, and we had this a little bit these stereotyped views of people involved in um, uh, national uprisings in uh, in the 19th century. Uh, some of them are intellectuals, you know some of them are merchants, uh, some of them are bandits, uh, some of these are peasants. Yeah. Um, and what struck me researching you know, primary documents on this topic is that there are a lot of figures who might actually fit all those categories. You know. So someone like Tudor Vladimirescu is uh, a free peasant born in the west of Wallachia, near the Habsburg border in 1780. Yeah. Uh, despite being you know, born into a peasant family, uh, he rises in the social hierarchy. He acts as bailiff uh, to one of the local boyars. He becomes uh, quite well educated. He can write not just in Romanian, but in Greek and German. Yeah. And one of the things he does write about is maize. You know, he is uh, trading maize you know, uh, both across the Danube uh, to the Ottomans, uh, but also across the Carpathians uh, into Habsburg lands. Yeah. Um, so if we want to ask ourselves the question, you know, how did these people have uh, uh, partly the courage, but also the power, the economic 
resources uh, in order to stage an uprising at this point. On the one hand, they partly have the support of foreign powers, or they claim to have the support of foreign powers such as Russia, uh, which it turns out um, uh, they didn't have the support they needed. Um, uh, but they do have maize, you know, and they also want maize. You know, when Ypsilanti's army comes into uh, Moldavia in 1821, there are explicit instructions uh, uh, to gather maize. You know, uh, he needs it to feed his army, you know, uh, but also to make sure it doesn't get into other people's hands. You know. Uh, Vladimir who may be trading maize with the Ottomans at the same time that he's rebelling against them. Uh, but you find it in documents. It's a complicated story. I can't quite tell it in a um, short answer to a podcast. Uh, but it's another example of how uh, something like maize you know, can actually be a historical actor um, in its own right. You know, uh, we can say, you know, was the rebellion caused by the Greek guy? Was it caused by the Romanian guy? And I'm saying, well, no, it's caused by this plant, uh, which they're all really interested in. Yeah. And even the Ottoman Turks at this stage um, start to get interested in maize. You know. They start to take tribute in maize, which they've never done before. You know. um, uh, there are uh, Ottoman traders who come to the Danube, to the towns of Galatz and Braila, in order to load up ships to provision uh, the uh, capital city of Istanbul. Yeah. Uh, and we see them buying up maize in the 1810s and 1820s like they've never done before. Yeah. And the Ottomans are also feeding their armies on maize, um, which again, is something we don't have reference before. You know. um, so at this moment, you know, this decisive moment in modern history, uh, when we start to get the move from imperial power uh, to independent national states, you know, uh, maize is at the heart of the story. Um. So after Ypsilanti's rebellion and things start to settle down, Wallachia and Moldavia then become protectorates of Russia in 1829. And one of the first things the Russians were interested in when they took over was maize. Um, how did maize help consolidate Russian control of the principalities? Yeah, this is again uh, the next phase, uh, if you like, in Romanian uh, national development. Now, after this um period of disorder and rebellion in the 1820s, then uh, 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 the uh, principalities of Moldavia, Moldavia and Wallachia are put under Russian protection. Uh, and there's a very able Russian general who comes in, Pavel Kiselyov, uh, who effectively kind of reorganizes the administration of this space. Yeah. Um, he creates a quarantine along the Danube. You know, he creates a stable frontier. Um, so you know, Ottoman subjects are not allowed to enter these territories without permission. Um, uh, there's very extensive reorganization of um, uh, social relations in the village. Um, the peasants are divided into uh, different social categories. Um, uh, basically, agriculture is uh, extended. Yeah. And a little bit, this is with a view to export. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people date um, uh, the origins of capitalism in Romania. Uh, to this date, 1829, yeah, uh, when uh, free commerce is permitted out of the Danube and through the uh, Black Sea Straits. <coughs> um, so, yeah, this is this is kind of a key point in uh, territorialization, um, sedentarization, yeah, hierarchy, hierarchization, uh, you know, uh, confirmation of, uh, if you like, a kind of late feudal social structure. Um, the boyars, the peasants, and the middle class, you know, uh, the development of cities, Bucharest, and the Yash are growing cities at this point, you know, uh, 
Bucharest exceeds 100,000 in population. You know, it's the largest, by far the largest city in southeastern Europe, uh, uh, between Istanbul and Buda. Uh, no city is, you know, of a comparable size uh, in uh, in the Balkans. Yeah. Now, particularly with a view to export, Russia is, of course, developing uh, uh, its own uh, grain trade at this point uh, through the recently founded city of Odessa on the north of the Black Sea. Yeah. And uh, in fact, Russian exports of wheat are of quite some significance uh, uh, for uh, the development of um, extended commercial networks supplying uh, cities uh, in the northern Mediterranean. Export from Odessa through uh, Trieste, through Genoa, through Marseille, you know, um, plays a not in- insignificant you know, role in, um, in European development at this point. Yeah. As such, you know, they're also uh, uh, concerned that uh, uh, although the principalities should grow and export maize, they shouldn't compete with the Russian um, effort. This is actually a very actual topic. You know, you see a whole kind of uh, set of debates uh, today about uh, export of grain from the Black Sea. Um, uh, but if the uh, uh, principalities can export maize, they would not be in competition uh, uh, with the uh, export of grain uh, from uh, the Russian steppes. Yeah. Nevertheless, the Russians do uh, make some efforts to obstruct commerce. Um, uh, there's a series of kind of quite heated diplomatic exchanges between the British authorities and uh, uh, the Russian authorities as to the navigability of the uh, Danube Delta. Uh, the British accuse the Russians of trying to silt it up um, uh, and uh, fail, failing to make it navigable, um, and you know, actually you know, not acting in you know, the principles of free commerce, you know, which the British tried to uh, promote. And this has been the subject of a very interesting book by a uh, colleague in Bucharest, Konstantin Artelianu, um, uh, who's written about uh, navigation on the Danube in the 19th century and its importance for international law, but its also importance for the international uh, and indeed the world economy uh, at this point. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is a period of uh, uh, incipient capitalism, uh, uh, development of really extensive uh, uh, agriculture yeah, designed for commercial purposes for export. Because um, the funny thing, under the Turks, then uh, under the Ottomans, uh, uh, cereals were not really at the center of export from uh, from these territories. It's really when the Russians come in and you start to get this kind of proto-capitalist system uh, that you get um, not if you like plantation agriculture, you know, some people could even make comparisons to, you know, plantation economies of rubber or cotton or coffee in other parts of the world. Um, uh, but you really get a kind of maize centric uh, economy uh, or certainly a cereal centric uh, economy uh, at this point. And it's an object of contestation between the great powers all the way up until the period of independence uh, in 1878. Um Apart from the fact that the British are everywhere in the 19th century, uh, it, struck, it sounds weird to talk about the British getting involved in in Eastern Europe. And in the book, you, you make a point that it was really quite suddenly in the 1840s that Britain kind of discovered the Romanian lands. What was it about Romania in the 1840s that got the British interested in going there? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I've kind of sketched this um, picture where before this period, the main you know, foreign uh, observers and envoys who come to this region are not the Brits. You know, that definitely, it's definitely one place where the Brits um, didn't come first. You know, um, so you have 
there are many British travellers in earlier periods, um, uh, but the important ones are really obviously the imperial powers themselves, the Ottomans and the Habsburgs. You know, they have administrators and explorers and so forth. But you have Russian observers. Uh, you start to get consulates set up in the late 18th century. Uh, the Prussians uh, take an interest under Frederick the Great. There are even Neapolitan and Sardinian envoys. Uh, you know, everyone's kind of looking to this region, thinking, you know, this is a very fertile part of the world. You know, what can be done to improve it? And this is a little bit the period of Europeanization, you know, not just in culture and language and literature, but also in economy. Yeah. Um, now, the Brits come to this a little bit late. You know, their main concerns are um, not primarily in the Balkans. Um, they're interested in the Mediterranean. They're interested in the Indian Ocean. You know, uh, they have developed the uh, imperial networks in India, um, but also in the Atlantic, um, uh, in Latin America. Uh, and so forth. You know, this is initially quite a kind of secondary uh, part of the world. Yeah. And I think you know, they get interested in it partly for the reasons of inter-imperial competition, uh, which I've tried to outline already, the conflict with the Russians. You know. um, but they also get interested in it for a, um, uh, a curious reason. This is, the 1840s is, of course, the, uh, a period of famine, uh, not just in Ireland, but also uh, in many parts of Western Europe. Yeah. And uh, uh, the British government uh, famously um, uh, did very little to relieve the famine in Ireland in 1846 and 1847. But one thing they did do was try to convince the Irish to eat maize um, uh, when there were no uh, potatoes. And maize was imported, first of all, from the United States, uh, but then also from the lower Danube region. So we have Moldavian and Wallachian maize uh, reaching Ireland at this point. Yeah. Uh, the policy was a uh, total disaster. Um, the Irish refused to eat uh, uh, what they called, after the name of the then British Prime Minister, Robert Peel, they called it Peel's Brimstone because yeah, of the yellow colour uh, of the maize. Yeah. Um, and that's actually an example of a kind of imperial policy where people are using maize uh, or imperial powers are using maize not as an escape crop, um, uh, but almost as a kind of um, a crop to um, give to the subaltern. Uh, uh, population. Yeah. And you see this in other parts of the world. So in the U.S. South at this period, um, uh, slave owners use maize um, uh, to feed their slaves. Yeah. Uh, so the slaves in the U.S. South, they grow cotton, they grow sugar, um, uh, but they are fed um, uh, on uh, on maize. Yeah. The British did try to do the same with the Irish. Yeah. The British tried to do the same with um, convicts in Australia. Yeah. Uh, uh, who were fed maize you know, uh, until uh, the 1840s, emancipation. Um, uh, the first thing the convicts do when they're emancipated is um, stop eating maize. They don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this book finishes in the early 20th century uh, after the 1907 uprising. Um, and it finishes with a couple of chapters on the place of maize in Romanian folklore, literature and recipe books. And you point out there's almost no recipes for Mamaliga in Romanian cookbooks that are written for Romanians, but that cookbooks written for foreigners about Romanian cooking, Mamaliga is everywhere and it's front, you know, it's the most important thing you want to tell about foreigners. Um, what does this tell us about the cultural meanings of maize, do you think? Yeah, again, this is a very interesting question. Yeah, I was looking um, uh, not just at the kind of political economy of maize, which I've talked about um, uh, hitherto, but also, you know, uh, the cultural representations of maize. In fact, I kind of started from that question, trying to pick out, you know, what Mamaliga might mean to people. Yeah. And uh, 
There are some recipes for mamaliga. I should contextualize a little bit. So uh, in the mid-19th century, you know, you get a literary nation-building process, just as you get in other countries in East Central Europe and in Western Europe as well. Things get codified as national. Yeah. Uh, so again, in Scotland, we have the tartan, we have the porridge, uh, uh, we have the shortbread, you know, uh, we have uh, a, codif- a codification of um, everyday culture, you know, involving, you know, not just works of high literature, but also food and clothing, and music, uh, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, cooking is no exception. So in the 1840s, you get the first Romanian uh, cookbooks. Yeah, We do have one Romanian recipe from 1849 um, by, uh, in a cookbook by a woman called Maria Maurer, of whom we know very little ab- about her. Um, uh, uh, she published a, a cookbook with the simple title Cookbook, uh, or Carte de Bucate in Romanian. Yeah. Uh, and she publishes a recipe for mamaliguza, yeah, kind of little mamaliga, if you like. Yeah. Uh, but this appears to be a translation of a foreign recipe. And uh, in really in no cookbook that I found was mamaliga given a prominent place. So you do get it mentioned here and there. And in the 1910s, 1920s, and 1930s, you get kind of large-sized, uh, uh, you know, complete cookery manuals, you know, uh, sometimes uh, uh, used, in fact, not just in the home, but in schools uh, to promote uh, domestic economy. You know. So this would be the kind of incorporation of women's labor into the kind of national effort uh, in a more formal way, you know, so how you should, how you should keep house as a good Romanian, um, how you should, um, how you should wash, wash clothes, you know, and so forth, but also how, you know, how you should cook. Um, uh, so there's kind of encyclopedic works by um, uh, reputed authors, Sanda Marin, for example, Ekaterina Komsha, uh, the kind of repertoire of cookbooks, which has been quite well studied by previous scholars. Um, uh, you do get Mamaliga in these kind of works, but really kind of uh, it's never signaled as prominent. You know, It sort of appears on page 357 in a separate section, you know, three or four recipes for Mamaliga. Yeah. Um, but national identity functions... Uh, I think not just through transmission inwards, you know, to spreading, uh, if you like, that kind of uh, codification of mamaliga to the people, you know, what is a correct mamaliga, you know, how to eat it properly, you know? um, uh, but also outwards. Yeah. Um, so you see in sources like Romanian contributions to world exhibitions, uh, yeah, these are kind of great showcases for national identity in the 19th century, attended by huge numbers of people, you know, eager to learn about uh, uh, the new or to them new nationalities of Eastern Europe. Uh, so you will find the Romanian Pavilion in 1889 uh, at the um, Universal Exhibition in Paris. Uh, if you were able to go there um, uh, with a time machine and order some food at the Romanian Cabaret. Um, as a visitor to that exhibition, uh, you would get mamaliga. You would be served uh, mamaliga. Yeah. And you get the same thing in a series of exhibitions in 1938. There's again a, a major uh, 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 world exhibition and the Romanians translated cookbook. Uh, and here mamaliga is kind of uh, page one. Yeah. And that's something you still see today. So, you know, uh, many Romanian cookbooks, you know, but it's kind of changed a little bit, Mamaliga. It's become a little bit more of a side dish, you know. Um, so if you go to a fancy restaurant in Bucharest, you can certainly order Mamaliga. Sometimes as a starter, maybe with uh, white cheese or cream, uh, sometimes with eggs. Uh, Mamaliga goes very well with dairy. Yeah. Um, uh, but sometimes as a side dish, just as you would have um, 
chips on the side, you would have instead of that, you would have uh, mamaliga on the side. You know, um, uh, so that kind of fits into a more uh, uh, Europeanized, um, uh, you know, main dish as an accompaniment to lamb or pork or um, uh, or so forth. Yeah, um, but um, so it gets kind of a little bit sentimentalized. Um, uh, or uh, or branded uh, in um, uh, general kind of international uh, uh, production of cookbooks uh, for an international audience, uh, but in the domestic uh, repertoire, you know, uh, it's not always there. You know, and I was actually quite puzzled by this absence. You know, do people want to hide the mamaliga? Um, uh, you know, I would rather be eating something better. You know, uh, this is not something important to us. You know, um, or is it part of a kind of um, a submerged cultural code, or is it something that's so obvious? And it, as I said, I think you know, from a technical point of view, Mamaliga uh, doesn't require a huge amount of instructions. You know, is it worth putting it in a cookbook, or is that kind of something that's um, that's always there, kind of in the background, um, uh, which doesn't require you know, to be explained? You know, would you serve it on a feast day? Would you serve it at a wedding, or would you? Is this just your everyday food, which you'd rather, in fact, avoid on kind of? Uh, festive or important occasions. Yeah. Um, I didn't totally get to the bottom of this puzzle, I would say, you know, and it's very tempting, I think, if you're doing this kind of um, cultural anthropology of cookbooks, you know, to, to codify too much, to kind of read too much into it, you know, um, uh, to say, you know, uh, this is what it's like at elite level, this is what it's like at peasant level, this is what the foreigners think, this is what the local people think. You know. um, but there are definite patterns uh, there, you know. And one of these patterns is, I think, um, the presence of Mamaliga in international branding, but its absence in, uh, 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 or its reduced presence in uh, domestic publications. Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Um, and you've shown us how how useful maize is for thinking the history of the the 17th and 18th centuries and also 19th century. Um, I've seen a lot of these events for the first time through fresh eyes, um, hearing about the way that that maize functions in uprisings and in um, occupation regimes. And as a historian of the 20th century, I really hope that we'll see a sequel um, that brings us at least to the fall of communism, if not later. But thank you very much for your comments today, Alex. Uh, thanks a lot, Roland. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think there could be a, uh, an opportunity to write not the making, but the breaking of Mamaliga. And it does, I think, play a very important role in World War I. Uh, there's been some good work on consumer culture. Uh, there's a PhD at the Central European University uh, on, uh, by a scholar called Skrob. Lucian Skrob has written about, uh, in fact, the decline of Mamaliga, uh, which really takes place remarkably late in the second half of the 20th century. People want to eat bread. Um, people give up Amaliga a little bit, you know. Um, so that's a very good consumer study, um, uh, but also its actual role in the economy and export and so forth, you know. Um, and looking maybe, you know, uh, studying uh, the rise of uh, far right movements in the interwar period or, you know, uh, the place of uh, uh, communist Romania uh, in Comic Con, you know, uh, in the uh, international economy of the um uh, at the eastern Bloc, you know um really kind of yeah moving a little bit away from individual actors and looking at um at social processes you know i think that would be a fun project um but i finished um on the eve of world war one um because i think maybe the reader has enough to eat uh, by that stage so we can take a break and 
uh, come back to it more Mama Liga, maybe at a later stage. Nice. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roland. 